This is part two of a conversation between myself, Paul Axton, Matt Welch, and Brad Jerzak. We spoke to Brad last week, and we covered his new book uh, concerning the role of Christ as a hermeneutic. And this week, then, we delve further into his understanding of peace. But here is part two of a two-part conversation with Brad Jerzak. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. And I guess to just sort of follow up, uh, Brad, on both your comments, uh, the progression of, of sort of our understanding of the scriptures about God, how God has progressively, progressively revealed in them. Paul, um, you know, your ideas about how you know, for instance, peace, uh, our notions of peace and how we work those different things out have also progressed. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, the temptation would just be to say, well, you know, the people in the Old Testament, they, oftentimes they just got God wrong. You know, they, they just they just completely got him wrong in many cases or whatever. Um, I think that this is more of a, a gracious sort of generous way to, to talk about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm all in with that. You know, but the Old Testament seems to sort of critique it even itself in places like Jeremiah 7. And, you know, uh, uh, they say, hey, I never, you know, I didn't require, you know, these sacrifices and things like that. And so I'm wondering, do we know more about God now? than we ever have, I guess would be the first uh, question. And then kind of a follow-up, or, or must we, you know, limit progressive revelation maybe to the time of the fathers, you know, the church fathers? That would be maybe the second way. Um, can, I, can I stop you, Matt? That, sure, sure. And I want you to continue with the question. In other words, the issue is not progressive revelation. The issue is progressive apprehension of the revelation that we have. Okay. But go ahead. No, 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 that's, that's it. That's it. Um, so I, I guess, I, but I would still ask, though, uh, if the progressive apprehension, which I like, um, do we then, do we know now, Brad, more than about, uh, about God and about, you know, just theology in general and about, you know, than, than we ever have? Oh, uh, we'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like, I, I like that phrase, progressive apprehension, because progressive revelation I, I learned even as a very conservative fundamentalist, you know, and we, what we would just say is, yes, there's a progressive revelation. We know this for sure. Plus now we know this, plus now we know this, but all the things we've ever known for sure, we're always right. It's just that the, that what we were right about has grown with progressive apprehension, or I might call it progressive illumination. It's more like veils are being taken off. And so the awkward thing is that veils get put back on fun again <laughs> but um so you can see how even it's a real fascinating study to watch how the old testament critiques itself even within so even prior to christ like you said jeremiah 7 or the critiques within joshua or the story of david being tempted by god and then later revised to be tempted by satan and so on so you, you're seeing an unveiling happening already there also then, Christ then further unveils the Old Testament so that we can see how it was pointing to him and, and the ways in which to read it to do so. Um, I see that in the first four centuries or five centuries, the, the church is focused on the question of who do you say that I am? And there's a greater unveiling of the nature of Christ as one person and in fully human and fully divine. That takes them a long time to get to. Even the full personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit, they're only really 
coming to that at the end of the fourth century, probably the 370s, 380s. I think the Enlightenment in some ways was very positive because there's an unveiling of a lot of superstitious religion that was around Christianity. But again, now I'm, I'm on the one hand, I'm seeing slippage. <laughs> in, in I, I'm seeing vast chunks of of, let's say, progressive Christianity that are increasingly embarrassed of the name Jesus. Mm. And they think I'm too Jesus-y. Mm -hmm. That feels like slippage. Yes. But on the other hand, it feels almost like a new reformation in terms of the unveiling of the Father as, as love, as sort of like the Father Jesus revealed in the prodigal son's story now has some about 30 or 40 years of traction that, that just didn't exist in like for a long time before that, we could easily imagine him being loving and kind of <laughs> fickle and, and, and violent. So I, I feel like that's really got traction now. And in fact, within a couple generations, even now you've got people who aren't Christians. Let's say my friends who aren't Christians who go to 12-step recovery, they have a notion of God and that God is, is love, loving, caring, and forgiving. Well, nobody thought that before Christ. Like, may, maybe maybe David did, but I mean, like all of the other religions weren't, or, or non-Jewish religions, they wouldn't have said that. Now it's almost like this global assumption. Like, that's pretty good. So, so yes and no, <laughs> but more of yes, maybe. Let me restate what you said and see if my restatement gets it. But there is a dawning of the light at the same time that there is a blackening of the night. That's nearly poetic, isn't it? <laughs> That's fully poetic. <laughs> Let's run with that. I like it. That um, it is like Rene Girard might depict it. In other words, that part of overcoming just violent sacrificial religion is removing the scapegoating mechanism, which means that Christianity truly understood not a sacrificial sort of pagan Christianity, is in fact going to give rise to anarchy. Yeah, um, because when you remove the scapegoating mechanism, remember the magic of the scapegoating mechanism was pseudo-peace. Now if you don't have pseudo-peace, you've got Christ or nothing, you know? And, um, and it remains to be seen which, which we'll choose. And in some ways, it's not looking good. I feel like um, Gerard would be Gerard in the end was more pessimistic than I would be because I, I I also feel like the the light the light is not easily snuffed out and it will overcome the darkness. And as First John says that the, the light's already shining, the darkness is fading away. So it's partly up to me to to say not how that's not true, but how it is true, where it's true, and how I can participate in that truth myself. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of those, that can transition us a little bit into, we were talking about progressive illumination, which I, I love that that phrase. That's a great way to, uh, to think about it. And I guess I wanted to ask, Brett, you know, your notion of kenosis, which you, you hit upon a lot in a more Christ-like God, I would think that, you know, I work at a faith-based uh, drug treatment center, and I use this stuff every day to minister to guys who uh, receive the God that you're explaining who's revealed in Jesus Christ with such 
excitement. Like there, it's such good news to them. Once you explain to them and you're like, yeah, God is light and in him, there's no darkness whatsoever. God is love. God is good. So we're going to start right there and we're going to, he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And then we're going to build upon all that. And, and I think that, and I'm, I'm telling you, we just see him light up every day and they're like, this is the best thing ever. You know, uh, it's actually, it's really exciting. And I mean, back to the thing that we were talking about in the old Testament to try to find Jesus in the Old Testament, to me, is just one of the most wonderful exercises. I mean, just even in your book, you go through the wisdom of Solomon, and just to and to just kind of go through there and to kind of go, man, there's Jesus, you know. And you, you can you can see those echoes and things uh, in the New Testament. But I, I think that your notion of kenosis, you know, or emptying out, but not just emptying out, but sort of how do you put it? Sort of filling the world with goodness or filling creation with goodness. How does that vision of kenosis change how we might understand? not only who God is, but who we are to be for the world. Yeah, so let's start with God. You know, I used to think that kenosis meant Jesus emptied himself of his glory and even somehow of his godness and then showed up disguised as a servant temporarily. But when he ascended, he went back into Zeus mode. Um, Now I see it the opposite. I I think that God has always been kenotic, in other words, self-giving, others-centered, self-donating, the early church would say. And that that Christ's incarnation reveals that par excellence. Um, In fact, it's the ultimate self-emptying, even unto death, right? So so that's good. (laughs) In fact, that's the nature of love. We talk about agape love. Well, what is agape love? Agape love is canonic. It's self-giving, radically forgiving, others-centered, co-suffering, all of that. How that then plays out in our lives. That's what I get into in the the Jesus way stuff in a more Christ-like way, where we think in terms of that that kenosis word, for those who don't know, it comes up in the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, where it's describing Christ um, emptying himself and then becoming a servant, dying and being exalted. But the reason why Paul cites that hymn, actually in context, is there's been a conflict in Philippi. And some of the women who seem to be elders there, who he names even, it's like, look, at, we've got to deal with this conflict. And so, so at the beginning of chapter two, he says, here's, here's the mind I want you to have. Um, the one that was like Christ, self-giving, others-centered, putting others ahead of yourself. Be canonic, in other words. So the, the whole kenosis theology comes out of a practical pastoral issue in a church where there'd been a conflict. And they're saying, what is the means to unity? What is the means to reconciliation? How do you get to peace between hostile people or groups? Oh, you do it. You do it through kenosis. This is super important on a, on a grand scale too. Um, like who will take the first step and who's going to lay down their rights? You know, well, you look at um, the whole Israel-Palestine conflict right now. And what I've, what I've seen is that there is a real desire for peace there, but they're not willing to, walk the way that gets you there. There's a resistance to kenosis. There's a desire to have peace without surrendering hatred. (laughs) Well, good luck with that, you know? And so, so I think in terms of um, that peace is a byproduct of, of canonic self, self giving other centered love. And it worked, it worked in terms of reconciling the world to God, but will it work in terms of reconciling the world to each other? That depends on, our willingness to surrender. And that's the point. <laughs> Instead of grasping like Adam and Eve, Christ 
lets go of the grasp it. He's like, I'm not, I'm not a grasper and God's not a grasper. He's a giver. And so be like that. That's what I hear Paul saying. And that's the, that fits in obviously to the message in Philippians. None of us are capable of canonically giving up our deity, but we're certainly capable of emptying ourselves in the manner of Christ. And that's the whole appeal of that kenotic passage as Paul is calling for harmony. So I think that we, as you describe it, we often read that exactly wrong. And we miss then Christ as the model of who God is that we are to, to imitate. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, it's funny because I do think it is the language is a reflection on, on Genesis where Adam and Eve actually are like God. They've been made in his image. And now the serpent comes and says, you could be like God. All you have to do is become a grasper. Take that fruit. And Jesus comes along and he, and, he, and he is God. And he says, actually, to be godlike, to, to be divine is to, be, is to let go, is to surrender, is to enter utter willingness and, as he does. And, and if we think that we can self-actualize through autonomy instead of dependence on the care of a loving God, then, well, we'll end up in addictions and not just to heroin, to, yeah. you know, stuff, to ourselves. Ego. Which may be harder to name. I, this is a terrible thing to say, but I've always thought there's something really concrete, you know, about the various addictions that people have. But in fact, I think people can be addicted to something that is, in fact, more insidious and unnameable that is just as deadly. Yeah. Yeah. If we had to give it a name, I, I would call it the ego or the craver. Some addicts call it the addict, right? But there, or, or maybe Paul called it the flesh or, or Christ called it the self, but it means the autonomous self. And it is, it's so insidious because it's a black hole and there's nothing you can throw in that black hole that will ever, ever fill the craving. And so maybe that's the issue of, of, of what sin is. <laughs> Sin's not just law-breaking behavior. It's this fatal disease Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank God we have a great physician, and the cross is the medicine for that, which it looks to me to be like um, all merciful love. Yeah, that is my area of work is in uh, doing a psychoanalytic reading uh, along with uh, Romans 7 and 8, actually 6, 7, and 8. And the word that Paul uses in chapter 7 is, in fact, ego, the word that we get ego from. And of course, that's precisely the lie, the deception that he describes in Galatians, that the ego, the I, no longer lives, but has been crucified with Christ, and now Christ lives in me. So that what gets displaced is that deceptive construct that he's describing in chapter 7, and displaced with the dynamic he describes in chapter eight yeah i'm totally tracking with you i love that and i like how i love the words you use for it too so that the deceptive construct versus the dynamic well the dynamic of the christ life the spirit spirit life just to connect it to my book a little bit what's the active ingredient in that it's it's the spirited in that cries out abba that knows god as intimate father versus the punitive judge or the absentee landlord 
mm-hmm. or the genie in the bottle that I can manipulate. All these false images of God, they, I think Christ has come to really dis- displace those with, with, with an imminent father who, who cares and loves. I think he uses Abba 70 times. It's my favorite name for God because mm-hmm. it was Jesus' favorite name for God. Yeah, I just did the podcast with Michael Harden. And, okay. And he kept referring to Papa or, and I think just in that sense. This is one of the reasons that I am peculiarly fascinated with uh, Slavoj Zizek. I don't know if you're familiar with Zizek, um, but he is the most angst-ridden individual that you can encounter who has completely understood the depth of meaning in Romans 7, tied that into a psychoanalytic perspective, and imagined that that's all that there is. In other words, here is the human condition in his estimate, the reality that Paul paints in chapter 7, but of course he's an atheist and an atheistic Marxist materialist, and saying all we can do is manipulate that angsty, agonistic struggle, the death drive, and be sick and take lots of Xanax. Wow. <laughs> so we're back to peace again, right? Because then peace peace of heart, and peace of mind becomes the hottest commodity in the world. And uh, people are paying a lot of money on street corners and in pharmacies for it. Um, some of them are going to therapy and finding it, and others aren't. And I, so then the question is, what, what's being delivered when peace shows up? But, uh, and what's behind it? And I, I would say that the Prince of Peace is behind effective, effective therapies. Um, and often that has to do with insights that Jesus himself made in ter- and, and Paul in terms of letting go of ego. And in, in fact, uh, just, just last week, I was talking to a university dean, a, a very big department in a very big university, and he was saying that the Generation Z is the most anxious generation in human memory, uh, far more so even than the millennials. And they're just beside themselves. They can't function. And he said, the remarkable thing is that the solution to it that actually deals with the problem is humility, gratitude, and forgiveness. Hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that sounds like something Jesus would say, you know, mm-hmm. um, that it's a way of addressing these problems. The people that I'm working with are primarily millennials or younger, and I think there is a large disaffection, first of all, from evangelical Christianity. But I don't necessarily see that as a negative. In other words, people are saying, oh, this is empty. I think that's the obvious thing that we get in this political period, at least in the United States. Here is the end result of an evangelical faith, and it's as empty as our churches, you know, the the depth of understanding. And I think people are leaving that. That's step one, I think. I think you've said as much to conversion you know, to to finding Christ is to, in some way, recognize that it's not there in in what we're calling Christianity. Not only emptiness, but even almost something like PTSD in many cases, because of the left behind stuff, the Armageddon stuff, the hell stuff, and all of that. What's tragic is that, in a sense, then, that the church apostatizes. They turn from authentic faith. Then these folks leave that, which is probably the right thing to do, but then lose their faith altogether and associate the name of Jesus with that. And so in effect, it's almost like an inoculation. 
against the one thing that'll actually help them. So I'm still working out how to address that because I'm pleading with people not to move on from Jesus, even as they move on from spiritually abusive systems. Maybe we just have to accept that this is going to be a a many generation process of, of purification if there's hope at the end of it. To me, one of the most, you know, attractive things about orthodoxy is really the emphasis uh, when it comes to the atonement on healing, on rescue. And I think you do a really good job in your book of that. I mean, and just in very simple terms, I feel like there's one vision of atonement that sees the problem essentially with God, you know, that God has an anger problem or that God has a wrath problem that, that needs uh, sort of solved. Uh, And then in a very different, radically different understanding, the problem is actually with us, you know, that no, actually God doesn't have a problem, you know, God is uh, perfect and uh, you know, the, the fullness of the divine life and all these different things, but that humanity, you know, we're the ones who need healing and, and restoration and things like that. And I guess, as I was saying earlier, that is as powerful as that news can be, especially for people who are suffering, to present God as a healer, as a rescuer, as a nonviolent, loving, good father. Um, it's, it's, to me, it's crazy, Brad, how uh, that same news is just for other sort of Christians, is is sort of uh, almost heretical. I mean, I've, I mean, people get fired over this stuff. People get, you know, I, I rejected and ostracized and things like this for talking about, for having this conversation that we're having about God, you know, rejecting things like penal substitution. They just say, well, you're a heretic, you know, or our, our reading of the Old Testament to say, well, we have to maybe nuance and figure out, you know, different ways to sort of understand how we read the Old Testament. I mean, those are ways to get yourself kicked out of Christian circles, you know, really, really quickly. And, and I almost feel like sort of, you dig your heels in a little bit, you know, especially on the other side that they're, they're, they're vehemently sort of defending, you know, their orthodoxy and we're saying we're trying to gently correct and things like that. And I guess that my question to you is, is that are we approaching, at least in Protestantism, a sort of crisis in Christianity? Yeah, I mean, we're well into it. <laughs> approaching is a bit after the fact. <laughs> yeah. So so one crisis is that, you know, ha- that half of the church is left already. That's a crisis. The other crisis is that the reasons half the church has left are because orthodoxy has become the new heresy. <laughs> and I've, I've been accused now quite a bit, actually, of perpetrating the God is love heresy. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and, and uh, in, in no, like, just overtly being told God is not love. Mm. And, and I'm like, and I'm the heretic. Mm. Um, so to me, that's like, that's a huge crisis. So you, 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 you double down on the crises, right? First you have a apostatized gospel and then, and then people apostatize from it into just, hopefully they'll find something authentic after that. But that's like, that's a serious crisis when, when people are calling heresies that which the, founders of orthodoxy embraced and the very ones who defined what heresy is are now called the heretics by so-called conservatives who aren't conserving anything except maybe a 16th century legalistic kind of uh, transactional religion. And and like um, Paul was saying earlier, this does go earlier than that too. Um, Augustine really went astray um, in terms of the nature of God and salvation, I think as early as 400. So this stuff gets around. 
example, and I, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, but I guess just in my experience, it's like, well, you know, the Christians on the one side who are willing to go with a God who is retributive and violent and all these different things, who subscribe to penal substitution or to the idea that God might predestine the vast majority of people to eternal conscious torment for his own glory somehow. And just maybe to transition a little bit into sort of political theology. Uh, what I'm getting at is, is that a lot of people who hold to that sort of theology oftentimes import that sort of theology or, or at least accordingly sort of change their own politics, you know, in light of what they believe about Jesus Christ or, or about their Christianity, you then end up with a Christianity that sort of sanctions violence because God in some way sanctions violence. violence. There's a ground, you know, to their politics. And it, it just becomes a very scary thing because, um, you know, a Christianity that's the, the religion of peace is, of course, going to look very different then than a Christianity that, you know, doesn't, emphasize peace or doesn't want to critique, you know, capitalism or, you know, we could go on and on about a certain form of the faith and how it sort of manifests itself in the political realm. What, what's going to happen? You know what I mean? With, with, with the, the sort of the, the current state of things, you know, how do we shine our lights as Christians that can win the church back? Uh, I think that we're going to need to transcend the left-right spectrum itself left, right, conservative, liberal, progressive, all of that, the entire spectrum I would regard as the world system. And the hard part about that is how do you transcend it with, without ceasing to engage the culture? But let's just do one step at a time. So first of all, I, at one time, I, you know, I would have just thought, well, politically I'm moving from right to left or so, socially I'm moving from right to left, and I imagined that being less retributive, more compassionate, until I ran into the far left and found out they're as retributive as my fundamentalist friends. In fact, they are left-wing fundamentalists, and they're still retributive, and so we've now got the cancel culture and deplatforming and all, and it's very, very punitive. If you cross them and go off script, I'm like, oh, I get it. The spectrum is the world system, because the spectrum the entire thing relies on othering. It relies on us, them polarizing. It relies on deplatforming other voices and silencing um, through ridicule or, 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 or whatever. And it doesn't matter where you're at on the spectrum. If, you're, if your allegiance is to the talking points of that shifting spectrum, then that's what's leading you instead of the spirit of Christ. Okay, so then how do we repent of that? Um, so we repent of it by saying, I'm going to follow Jesus moment by moment, day by day, according to the Jesus way set out in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the gospel narrative. And sometimes that's going to make me look conservative, and sometimes it's going to make me look liberal, or sometimes it's going to make me look progressive, but that's an appearance and a coincidence, because that's not my, the ideology driving it. In fact, I'm not driven by an ideology, and I'm not willing to say yes to a script. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and to be Christian. And so um, what I'm noticing is a lot of my formerly evangelical Christian friends became progressive Christian friends, became progressive, not Christian, and, and uh, increasingly also violent. 
And so I'm like, wow, that was weird. Mm. Um, so it's not just about sliding up and down this spectrum and, and, and calling that faithfulness, but it's about saying this is hard work to actually follow Jesus and stay engaged without getting hooked into those ideologies. But I'll do the hard work because plan B is ugly. You know, that's how I'm approaching it. But you're doing, as I understand it, specifically dealing with theology and politics. Yeah. I'm curious. And, and, and ideology, because it's not always political, but it can, it includes that. But I noticed, is it a course or, in fact, that you're, just, that you're actually teaching about the theological engagement with the political? Am I describing that right? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Like, my PhD included the study of, uh, of Simone Weil, who was a French philosopher, mystic, very act, an activist, and then a Canadian red Tory, which makes no sense to Americans because that's like saying a left-wing conservative. And so I was looking at how they applied. I was looking at their underlying theology, which was the cross. And then I was looking at how, what they thought of the cross as consent and participation of God in this world to suffer with us instead of like sort of the top-down willful God of Calvinism. And they apply that theology in the political arena. And, and trying to sort out how you would even engage a public faith politically and socially. So that's, that's a good way to talk about it, I think. What does a public faith look like? That we're not meant to have a private faith, but I'm not sure it's meant to be a, a political faith so much as a public faith. And that can mean you may end up being a, um, a civil servant, truly, within the system. That may work better in the bureaucracy, although it's very frustrating because then every time a new party comes in, the last work you did gets undone and you got to enact new stuff. It's, so it's, it's really hard work, but I see models of it. So for example, my friend Charles Littledale, um, he, he acts as a consultant for first, with First Nations people, we call them, you'd call them American Indians, when the government wants to bring through a pipeline or when a, an oil company wants to bring in a hydro line, or a pipeline, he goes in and he consults with them to make sure that justice is done and that their concerns are met, but also that the compensation is maximized without just throwing it away and steering them towards community development with it. And like, so he's just really engaged every single day. And he mentored me for this in that for about a year, I thought I might actually enter that industry with him and the doors just didn't open, but I'm like, okay, that's how you do it. He is never caught up in left, right, conservative or liberal. He, he is truly a servant of, of uh, people at risk, but he's doing it from the government or from the business side um, so that their voice isn't stepped on. And I'm like, wow, that, so you'll have these people acting as salt and light sprinkled throughout actively engaged but rising above the spectrum and that's mm -hmm. kind of what i'm talking mm -hmm. about it's a little trickier if you decide to run for office because then you can be expected to tow a party line that looks nothing like jesus and and how do you resist that without being put in the back benches uh, it may work better at a city level I think. right you know who daniel ellsberg is that published the pentagon papers and he came out a couple of years ago with a book on actually he was part of the nuclear armaments plan that how the first strike plan and okay, how many millions would, would be killed. And of course it's a third of the planet that, wow. and maybe we really don't know. It could be total 
devastation. He's saying that, well, if it happens, that life on Earth, you know, could be at, at risk. And it's very likely, more likely to happen now than any time since the Cold War. But of course, his point is that you cannot run for the Oval Office in this country without showing a willingness to engage in a first strike nuclear uh, war. I mean, that's, you, you have to be mad, literally, and that's what they call it, mutually assured destruction. Yeah. But, it, but it's also called mad, the madman theory, that you want the guy with his finger on the button to appear slightly mad and unpredictable because you know only a madman would push the button but we have to give the appearance that we're willing. That's why when I would listen to Gerard, I, I thought, you know, there's nothing at all in the Bible that says, that suggests the Lord won't be returning to like just 200 people who have <laughs> survived it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, think, I think we've even been willing to engage a real naivety based in, in biblical assumptions that aren't biblical at all. It's like, well, He's going to come back, and he's going to stop it before we do this thing. It's like, who says he will? You yeah, know? maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> so uh, we 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 need to take some responsibility around the whole, uh, around being peace builders. And I use that expression just to say, peacemaking, like after the fact, is is not sufficient. And uh, we would be dropping love bombs, um, which in the end it is way cheaper. <laughs> Um, you can build a lot of hospitals and water treatment plants in places where folks then would say, why would we ever retaliate against that? That's Who wants to try that? Um, so when I, I believe it, when Jesus talks about the narrow gate, the narrow way and the, the, the wide, the broad way that leads to destruction, he's not talking about salvation or heaven or hell. He's talking about doing things the Jesus way of, of non-retaliation. And that not many people want to sign up for that, least of all Christians. It's too dangerous. Yeah, well, seems like it, doesn't it? Because you could end on a cross or something. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's the broad way that's led to destruction, and we've got the body count to show for it, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Reg, we would never accuse you of being too Jesus-y, uh, you know, on the Forging Plowshares podcast. We want to kind of give you an opportunity. Um, there behind you, there's a really cool uh, chalkboard that says, uh, our hope is not in a particular outcome, but in God, who can do more than we can ask or imagine, which I think is tremendous. And I guess I just wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to do a final, you know, if you, if you had to tell our listeners something uh, that could bless them or uh, could tell them something uh, great about uh, Jesus, what would it be? Uh, here's how I might share the gospel. That if there is a God, and I use the word if, not because of doubt, but as a faith statement. If there's a God, then that God is love. And if you want to know what that love looks like, you look at the life of Jesus Christ. And that love comes into clearest focus at the cross, where we see the nature of God revealed as self-giving, radically forgiving, self-co-suffering love. And so that kind of God is with us and in us. And I, I believe that, that when we call on him, he, he really does hear us and that he's not far away at all. And so that I, I wish that blessing on, on the folks this Advent season. And I'll just say one more thing. Uh, Advent is about waiting and preparing. And so uh, the statement you saw in chalk there is an example of that. You know, my, my wife right now is waiting for results from a biopsy. And waiting is really hard sometimes. 
And in the midst of that, the Lord spoke this to her. Uh, our hope is not in a particular outcome, but in God who can do more than we ask or imagine. So she's living this stuff. Uh, we're living this stuff. And, and um, we're, as we do, as we lean on that, we're actually finding out he's faithful, whatever that means. But our conclusion is that he's good and he's a good shepherd and he's good at being a shepherd. So we're going to follow as best we can. Brad, this has been such a delight talking to you, and we're so glad that you've taken time to, to have this conversation. Likewise, I really appreciate you having me on. God bless you, Brad. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.